Wake Up with Patty Catter. I love the show. I never miss an episode. It's the best. I turn it on and turn it up. Hello, everybody. You're listening to and watching Wake Up with Patty Catter, and I am Patty Catter. Today, I have Michael Stein with me on the show. Michael, welcome to the show. Ah, good to be here, Patty. Thank you. Thank you. I would love it if you just go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, uh, you know, Michael Stein, I do a podcast called Long Shot Leaders. And uh, the reason why I do a podcast like that is because I consider myself a long shot. My uh, backstory goes as follows. My grandmother escaped the Russian concentration camps on the way to America. And my dad was a New York homeless street kid, became a uh, uh, became a multimillionaire and then only to become homeless again. And later on in life, I was born a uh, premature health issues, ADD, ADHD, dyslexia, weird stutter. I was put in a special school at UCLA called Fernal school for like six months when I was a kid. They didn't, they didn't have all these aphorisms. Now they didn't know how to diagnose it. They just said kids hyper. He doesn't speak up when he's supposed to speak up. He's, he's too loud when he's supposed to be quiet. So I just had a lot of issues, a lot of health issues. Um, and I really didn't have any success until, you know, I, I'm making people laugh. That's what I did my, you know, my whole childhood. I was around a lot of dysfunctionality. My dad had, was notorious for having crazy Hollywood orgy parties, uh, you know, which will segues into my connection to Boogie Nights and the Dirt Diggler story and all that. And um, I really didn't have any success other than making people laugh until one day, like most American boys, I saw the movie Rocky when I was 10 years old. And I said, here's a guy like me. He's not successful. He's not considered smart. He keeps on getting knocked down and keeps on getting back up. And uh, the only, and, but he's funny and he's funny, but the only difference in this guy and myself is that he's physically fit. So from every day then on, I became made physical fitness, my cause celeb every day. So by the time I turned 16, I became a physical fitness trainer. I was known as somebody that was physically fit. And I was like, that's the second bit of success I've had. Cause I was also the funny guy. So then I, I said, well, I know what I want to do now when I, you know, I wanted to be like my dad, who was an entrepreneur, you know, he was known as the calculator kid in the seventies, made millions of dollars selling these calculators when it became small. I said, I want to be the calculator kid. So I told my high school tutor, I said, I want to be an entrepreneur, a stand-up comedian and an actor in that, in that, in that succession. And she goes, well, you know, you might want to work with your hands because not everybody was meant to do what they want to do. And I said, screw you later. She's just being nice. You know, I said, screw you. So then I started business a day after I graduated high school and I feel miserably. And I said, well, maybe she was right. You know, so then I go take a, some courses at city college, trying to figure out what I was going to do. I took business theater and psychology. And psychology was a big thing about, you know, you're a neurotic Jewish kid. Psychology is really big in Jewish families, you know? So I took that to understand what was wrong with me or what was, you know, what can I do better about myself and understand my, an art form of selling in business and, and all that. So then six months later, I, I decided I'm going to do stand-up comedy. I was 19 years old, finally going to do stand-up comedy. And I packed the house and I did fairly well. And I said, you know, I could do this with nightclubs and Los Angeles nightclubs in the eighties were big. So I start within six months, I open up a nightclub. It becomes a number one nightclub within six months after that in my age bracket in Los Angeles. And I was number one nightclub promoter. And I went on to meet a lot of people that way. I was, my career kind of like took off. I was able, my first acting role shortly thereafter uh, was in Paul Thomas Anderson's short film where I play Dirk Diggler and the Dirk Diggler story, which became Boogie Nights, which I appear in as well. And I, 
got to work with Peter Goober and John, John Peters, uh, who produced Batman, Rain Man. They won Academy Award that year when I, I did a big premiere for the movie Batman. The biggest premiere party at a nightclub is 4,000 people for a movie I think you could ever, I, I've never heard of that one. And I, I really felt like, you know what, I could do, I could do more. So then I said, I'm going to finally be an actor and I'm going to leave my nightclub business, which was crazy in retrospect, because I was like making a lot of good money and probably could have just done the same thing. But I said, I need the only way I could become an actor. Cause I always felt like no one would hire me and, you know, no one would hire me for business. Cause I was just hyper and awkward. Even back, even then, after I had some successes, people liked my energy, but I was still awkward. I think at least that's what I thought. And I left my nightclub business and, you know, started to direct documentaries on, you know, nightclubs and house music. And I went around the country for four months. I directed and wrote, produced a documentary on the history of house music in 1993 and doing a concert events, you know, around the event that I produced came back and that failed. So I said, you know what, the only way I'm going to become successful as an actor, as a filmmaker is to just burn the boats. So I left my nightclub business completely and I became a production assistant in commercials for four years. And then I said, I'm going to make a movie like my friend, Paul Thomas Anderson. He did a half hour short film drama, did well, segued into a film career. So then I did that. And then my, my, the short film I do called, did called Rituals and Resolutions did great. Got bought by HBO and made the second pass of live action, you know, for the Academy Awards. And it, it, it did really well for a short film and it got me close to a movie deal that would Joel Silver's office and every office you know, in Hollywood got with Trimark Pictures was going to make one of my gambling movies. We're going to make a movie that, that a screenplay that I wrote on the hit on um, uh, gambling in Los Angeles, underground gambling casinos, which I did when I promoted clubs <clears throat> and no deal after two years. So I said, screw Hollywood. I'm going to make another movie. I'm going to make a movie, a crazy comedy that no one allowed me to make. And the problem was, is I was broken. I was in debt and I decided, well, I was just going to become an entrepreneur again. And I wanted to sell something on the internet and I chose tarps, which has nothing to do with anything. It's a random product. There's a reason why I chose it. Cause it was, it does a lot of things and it can be adventurous. And I have a big foundation for the homeless when I was a nightclub promoter and I could do, I could help the homeless with that and do other things. And Within six months, I made half a million dollars for this film. And then I was off to races. I wrote, directed, produced, and acted with Faye Dunaway, Andy Dick, and Coolio, a movie that called Love Hollywood Style. And it almost broke my business. And I failed in the sense that it didn't make money, but I, I finished the project. And I, and I said, after this, I said, I'm going to, and this, during this whole process, I just told you, the story that I just told you, I fell in love. I got a wife. I got two kids. I said, you know what, Mike, you're going to have to choose that micro decision. Life, you know, chooses passion or passion versus opportunity. And I chose to never give up the passion, but then to burn the boats, but save a raft. Right. And then I chose opportunity. I grew in that business since into a hundred million dollar plus business. I still have my passions, but I concentrate on the business. And I said, if I'm ever going to do a podcast, it would be about the rise and fall of people and these crossroads that people have exploiting my journey and personal development, which was along this whole thing. And uh, that's why I do a podcast called Longshot Leaders. And that's why I'm talking to you today. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Your story is, is incredible. Um, I too have a little bit of ADD and ADHD. Good. So I keep up really well with you. <laughs> good. Keep, that's yeah. good. You got the hyper focus. Yeah. 
You know, it's true. And as a podcaster, for sure, you know, you can interview all sorts of different people and it keeps my mind busy and it's perfect for me. Podcasting is perfect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about how you grew up because your backstory about um, your grandmother and then your dad. um, I kind of want to know more about how did you grow up as a child um, and how did that impact you today? Okay. So my dad um, had this tool business and it was fledgering. He had a partner named Alan Smith and he says, I'm going to leave the tool business and I'm going to start this calculator business, but calculators became a little smaller throughout history. You take advantage of things that come along the waves, the internet, you know, web 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, you take advantage of it. So he was the first to sell these. He goes up to Canada and he sells like hundreds of thousands of these calculators. I call him the calculator kid. And he makes I had $3 million in like 16 months or something like that, which in, in 1973 or 72 was like an amazing amount of money. Right. He has, he, he cheats on my mom the whole time, you know, and, and he was a nice guy. Don't get me wrong. He looked like Elvis and he was acted like Santa Claus, but he was not faithful. And he had crazy parties. I told you about, he, we had limousines and we had, you know, it was crazy from the time I was like one to six, I was a spoiled kid. And then through all the, you know, sex, drugs, and disco, you know, he lost it all. Now that partner that he had, you know, in 1975, that, that partner was in the tool business. He opened up a company called Harbor Freight, which is a billion dollar company. And I, and I learned this later on. I was like, wow, that, that was, you know, you know, growing up around this, seeing two different lives, seeing the way that, you know, Alan Smith raised his kids. And so my dad, you know, my dad was great. So by the time I was like, you know, nine or 10 years old, my dad's business it was gone. He lost all his money. By the time I was like 12 or 13, he was nearly homeless and debt. And by the time I was 14, he went to jail for check fraud and he spent um, three months in there. And then he came out and he was homeless living in a van outside of the house that he bought my mom in Encino. Now that segues into, I grew up when my dad took off when I was like eight, seven or eight years old, I had to sleep in the same room with my grandmother because I'm the youngest. So I would hear these stories of like, you know, you're, we escaped the Russian concentration camps. That was my, and my alarm clock was, you know, that was like an old Jewish lady hocking up in the morning. So then I would hear that, how you're lucky to be alive. Uh, I would hear that my dad, you know, the story about being homeless when he was a kid. And now look at that, you know, so you're lucky to have what you have. And then my mom, because I was a oops baby and she used to, she was a very honest, neurotic lady. Um, very nice though. And she would say, you know, my son, he was a mistake, but I love him. I drank, I ran up and down the stairs. I, I smoked cigarettes, but he survived. I said, mom, can you just tell them if you want like ranch or blue cheese, you don't have to tell everybody the story, you know, <laughs> you know, so basically I would hear these stories about how you're lucky to be alive. And I grew up around a lot of volatility, sex, drugs, and disco. And I think because my brother got involved with a lot of that stuff and my, I'm the youngest and I, had a stepdad that was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. And I grew up with my grandmother and I, I, I saw these accidents in front of me. I think it kind of made me, you know, a little wacky, but I also think it kind of helped me in my desire to get into personal development, which I did when I was in my late teens, early twenties, which was a long journey. You don't go to one seminar and then things are fixed, you know, but um, I think that helped me. Um, so by the time I maybe saw the movie Rocky, I said, I'm going to build myself like a muscle and that kind of clicked with me. And I think all the dysfunctional dysfunctionality, I was able to do stand-up comedy about it. And I think it helped. Mm-hmm. What is one of your hardest trials that you've had in your life? Well, you know, 
there's a lot, you know, but speaking of childhood, you know, when you want your dad, my dad, you know, I looked up and I'm like, he's my idol. You know, I want to be the calculator kid. Right. So he, you know, said, I'll, I'll be home at eight and he'd show up in like April. So it was like a lot of, you know, you look outside the window and you that desire for your father. That was really hurtful, you know? So then I, you either date your mother or your father. So when I was dating my first girlfriends, I normally chose my dad as a girlfriend. So they would lie and cheat on me. And, you know, and my, you know, they slept with my best friend, one of them slept with my best friend, you know? So, you, you know, you, that breaks your heart. So those, those are some tough trials and tribulations. And that kind of, you know, was toughens you up as well. So, um, but getting broke myself after having success, um, I don't talk about this often, but I, I declared when I, I made a lot of money as a nightclub promoter in LA or like at the eighties, I was a mini celebrity. And then I would, left it all to become like this PA production assistant on commercials. And then I was broke after I did that short film. And then I had to file bankruptcy because everybody promised me money to invest in the film. So that was one of the trials and tribulations. There's been so many and so many um, trials and tribulations, but you know um, I think that not one stands out. I think they all work in a symphony, but at their blessings, because as long as they don't bottom you out and you look at them like learning experiences. And I ask myself enabling questions. You know, when it comes to those trials and tribulations, bankruptcy or getting cheated on or whatever, you know, can I do a stand up or stand up comedy routine about this? Can I write a screenplay into it? Can I use this, you know, to make myself myself more powerful? Can who knows what I could use over? Maybe I could talk about it on a podcast one day. So those are some of the hardships that I've had and how I think about them. Right. And, you know, not a lot of people will admit their hardships either. So that's huge. Um, I know I openly talk about mine because we're all human and we all screw up. <laughs> So if we don't talk about it, we can't help anybody. Right. And those embarrassing moments, if you own them, like my dad brought a prostitute, my bar mitzvah. That's not right, Patty. You shouldn't do that. You know, but I think it was like, it was an offering. And if it like didn't work, maybe it was like something he could fall back on, you know? And I just grew around that kind of stuff. And you have to laugh about it after a while. So you, you know, I mean, one of the darkest times, you know, is I was up in San Francisco. I'm in my early twenties at this point. I'm visiting my dad. He, he's, he picks up a prostitute. And I said, dad, I don't feel well. I got the flu. I'm going to sleep in the, on the floor of your bedroom. This is before. And then he goes, well, I'll just sleep in the van. He had, he kept the van, <laughs> even though he's living in a condo up in San Francisco. And I said, great. So I guess, you know, I'm sleeping. He, I guess he decided he wanted to use his bedroom. So I sit there and he has sex with a prostitute. And I wake up in the middle of it. I was like, you know, that decision you have to make, this is dark shit, but you know, that decision you have to make between like, well, I'm going to say something or I'm not, um, you know, and and I was just like half asleep and got the flu-like symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just slipped on the floor. And I was like, that was one of the darkest, uh, you know, if you want to come over, overcome something, I think that was in my sick mind, that was like, Mike, how are you going to use this? How are you going <laughs> to, you know, that was one of the, that was a dark moment, but you know, everything to me is a laughing moment. So mm-hmm. that was a, there's a lot more of those, but that's, you know, my life. Yeah. And I, and you mean, I own it. Yeah. I get that. I mean, I laugh a lot of, about things that other people might not laugh about, but you have to laugh. I mean, what's the alternative, right? Right. I mean, there's an alternative, but I'd rather not choose the, I'm choosing this one. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So um, what are you doing today? I know I want you to talk a little bit about your podcast. Well, I, my, my main uh, vocation is I own a company called uh, Abadak Inc., which owns a, a company called Tarps Plus, and we're launching a big lifestyle brand. Uh, called Bolo Tour uh, next year, a big outdoor lifestyle brand. So that's my main, you know, financial, you know, driver. Uh, I I started a podcast uh, eight months ago called Long Shot Leaders, 
which talks about the kind of stories I'm just telling you right now, people that have overcome large obstacles to find success, whether they're mental or physical or spiritual or financial, any kind of, you know, obstacle to find success. We tell those stories and that's basically, you know, what the podcast is about. And where can people find it? They can go to longshotleaders.com and they can see anywhere, anybody from somebody that was homeless for 12 years when they were 12 to 24 to becoming a, a manager and buying their first house in Omaha or to a Holocaust survivor to, um, you know, multi-billionaire. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know uh, the answer to this question. So forgive me if this is a hard one. How is your, I'm sure your grandmother's probably not alive still because of a year. I think you're the same age as me and I've already lost my grandparents. Um, but when did she pass and did she, was she able to see like your new company or no, my grandmother passed when I was uh, 17 years old and, um, you know, it's, uh, it was a hard, she had a really hard death, you know, she was, it was like a six month, you know, where she, her esophagus wore down, she can hold her food down. So, and she lived with us. So I have a saying, like, I have a high tolerance to like, if I'm going to be a get like your roommate in a bomb shelter and we have to stand there for a long time, I'm the guy, because I don't get tired of people very easily because I've been around so many situations that are really, you know, <laughs> the tough. And when you're the youngest, you, you know, sometimes you, you're, you're stuck with jobs you know, some, some, the oldest and the youngest and big family. So, uh, you know, if my great uncle says, you know, I got to go to the bathroom, somebody has got to help me wipe my ass and all the other older brothers and sisters leave. I'm like, okay, I guess I, I'm the guy that's got to do that. I'm it. Yeah. So, yeah. So that my grandmother died when I was 17 and, um, I, uh, you know, your, your, your outlook on death is different as you get older, but, uh, you know, that's, that's when she died. And, um, she died when she was 78 years old. Mm-hmm. I, I just wondered, she has a really, really incredible story, um, as a Holocaust survivor. So, um, I think she would just be really proud of you. I just want to tell you that I'm sure well, she you wasn't know. in the Holocaust. She, yeah, I appreciate that. Okay. She escaped the, the, you know, before Hitler did what he was doing, mm-hmm. I guess the Russians were putting all the Jews in concentration camps, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, like 10 years before that. And she, she was escaped. So my, her grand, her father, my great grandfather owned one out of two confectionery factories in Kiev. They were like really wealthy with Clydesdale horses and all that grandiose stuff. Mm-hmm. And on the way out of the country, they got, they, they had to give, sell everything. They had to get rid of everything and only what, take what they can take in suitcases. And so they were broke mm-hmm. and they're on the way to the ship and on the way to the ship, they got held at gunpoint. And my, her, my grandmother's uh, my uncle or little brother said, please don't kill my family. And I guess they were nice to the Nazis because they said, all right, let them go. And they, they got, they got out of it that way. Wow. That's incredible. I, um, I have a friend who's from Russia. Um, he was born in Kiev, is it Kiev, Kiev, yeah. something like that, that, um, plaque behind me is from that place. Um, but then I had another guy on my show, um, recently, and he was a Jewish, um, Holocaust or not a Holocaust survivor either. Um, but he came over here as an immigrant. So same thing. Um, so when you were, I usually don't go into detail too much about the history, but it's so interesting to me. So, um, with, with your dad, um, being homeless to multimillionaire back to homeless, um, were you ever to have any kind of closure with him? Because it sounds like you, it was kind of a turbulent relationship a little bit. It's, it's another weird aspect is that my relationship with my father was the best in my family. Cause I never, I loved him. And he was like, 
he, he was really nice, but really like he'd take advantage of you or, you know, not in, not in a mean way, you know, just kind of like, yeah, look, you know, and like, or he would like, you know, kind of just take off, you know, he, but he was very loving. So, and he was like Santa Claus, he'd arrive and he looked like Elvis. He wore all black, dressed like Johnny Cash, strikingly good looking, you know, women loved him. They always like, you know, thought he was amazing looking and guys wanted, all my friends like thought he was like the coolest person. So it was like Santa Claus came to town. So I just loved him and we had this great relationship. So I was never resentful. Um, I'm realistic about who he was, especially as I get older and I have a family, you know, cause that's become a major priority for me because of, you know, I saw the things that happened, but seeing him grow up, you know, when I was 17 years old, when he was in a van outside of that house in Encino and I go to school and, you know, and I'd be like, dad, you know, at least I got to see him every morning. Cause he was stuck there, you know, kind of, so I would, you know, cause he was fighting, you know, building his way back and I was happy to see him, you know? So I, I became even closer friends with my dad as I got older. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a healthy relationship with him at that point. Cause I knew who I was, my older brother got caught and involved with like sex, drugs and disco and everything else, you know, and those crazy notorious parties that, you know, I say this, you know, like my dad, Paul Thomas Anderson, who was did boogie nights, loved my dad. And he loose, he based that character on Burt Reynolds and boogie nights, uh, loosely based on my dad's character. And because my dad had these parties, he had this green house with green carpeting, green artwork on the walls. And he had these notorious orgy parties and everybody partied there and growing around that stuff. So I'd say that I had, I had a very healthy foundation of who I was because of all my other parents and all my other foundation. So I had a great relationship with them because I held strong. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess that answers your question. I love that. I, uh, yeah, I just love that. Um, and it's funny how, when you're older and you do have your own kids, you look at things a lot differently than when you're in the moment being raised as a child. Right. Um, right. And I, to be honest with you, you know, not it's, it sounds, what I'm going to say sounds really strange right now. Cause if somebody says, well, Michael, what about this? That's that knows of me. So my dad, um, married later on in life and we were best friends and he married somebody that wanted him all to himself because he was a party guy. And she didn't like the, the prior life of his, and that meant his kids too. So she restricted him. Uh, she was from another country um, and she restricted him to see his kids. So for the last year or two of my dad's life, you know, I really didn't get to see him that much and we reached out, you know, and he was kind always, but you know, he, he would get badgered not to, you know, so I didn't find out my dad passed away until four months after he passed away. Um, and it's fine because I knew he had, you know, like kind of the Robin Williams dementia, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he kind of dissipated before that. So that was really tough, but you know, I, I have a really good job of isolating and compartmentalizing reality. And the reality is, is that we were great friends. And when, and before those things changed, not everybody's the strongest person in the world. My dad had weak, some weaknesses, but that doesn't mean that we didn't have a part of a relationship was the best relationship you ever met. And it was a funny relationship. But to me, um, you know, I had a great relationship with them, regardless of even that, that, that crazy sad ending. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. Um, you don't know this about me, but my, I lost both of my parents in 2015. And of course, like you growing up, I had a few things that were a little bit different, not, not the sex and drugs. <laughs> um, but my dad did, he had a violent temper sometimes like 
I should say very angry, um, at times. However, as an adult, we had such a great relationship and we were able to put that, you know, on the back burner. And he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, and he just had some issues, you know, he, he had me when he was pretty young. So, um, I often try to tell people that, you know, take, take away the, um, good parts of a relationship and remember and hold on to those. So I love that you do that. I think it's really, really important. I concur with you. You know, you could reframe anything that you want as long as you really got to be honest with yourself though, if you're going to reframe something. So you try to be as honest as possible, but reframing it in an enabling uh, direction that'll, you know, enable you for empowerment. And that's what we try to do. And that's what it sounds like you done. And that is so important. That's something you don't learn you know, some people learn it early on, but that really is because you're always going to have a relationship that's challenged or, you know, not, there's no one's perfect. There's not one big size fits all friend or parent or anything, but then to find the value out of, you know, really what's great about them and then appreciate those parts of it. That's, that's part about being a more higher level consciousness human being, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much for being on the show. This actually turned into something a little bit different than I thought it would be. I was going to try to have you pull more laughs out, but I think that everything we've talked about is so moving. Yeah. You know, I don't know what it is, you know, maybe I should just do a a comedy podcast, you know, one day a week or something, because I never get, get involved with jokes on, on my podcast is drama driven. You know, whenever I talk to somebody, I'll throw a little bit of joke in there there. It's always drama driven because, you know, it's just where I gravitate towards, but I think that most comedians, I don't know if Jerry Seinfeld with the exception of him, most comedians really have a lot of baggage, a lot of shit that then that's why they become comedians there. They have a need for connection because they didn't get it when they were younger or, you know, th- there's just a lot of crap there, you know? So I drive, gravitate towards drama. Mm-hmm. I totally get that. Totally. Um, so again, remind everybody where they can find your website, your social media. You can just go to longshotleaders.com. You see all my socials there. And if you have a long shot story, uh, any way, shape or form, you know, metaphysical, spiritual, financial, you know, um, just anything at all, just, you know, contact us. We want to hear, I want to tell the stories of great long shots. It's always so great to hear somebody that has a unique, you know, challenge that they overcame to find success. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Yeah. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. You were really great to interview and I'm so glad to know you now. And, um, I know our listeners are going to get a lot of what we talked about today. Um, so those of you listening, make sure you go over to Michael's website, the long shot, is it longshot.com? Sorry. Longshotleaders.com. Longshotleaders.com. I should know that I had it in my head. Um, longshotleaders.com and make sure that you follow Michael on social media and um, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Michael, do you have any last words? No, I just want to say thank you for having me on the show. And thank you for your listeners. I really don't take any of this for granted. You know, I just uh, love sharing and connecting and um, trying to be, uh, you know, a vessel of you know positivity and bring happiness to people. And I'm so grateful to talk to you today. Isn't this wonderful that we can do this? I grew up in a day and age where you weren't able to. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know it. I love it. I know. I, I'm pretty sure we're about the same age. Just everything that you were talking about. I was like, I bet you I'm a little older. I don't know. <laughs> I don't fun. usually say my age on air, but I'm almost 50. So. I'm, I'm 54. Okay. So you're just a tiny bit older than me. All right. Well, you look a lot younger. 
Thank you. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> uh, thank you everybody for listening. And um, until next time, I am Patty Catter. Thank you for listening to Wake Up with Patty Catter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Follow Patty at Patty Catter on Facebook and Instagram. Get social. You can now watch Wake Up with Patty Catter on Amazon TV and Roku. It's the only podcast I listen to. Be sure to check out Patty's apparel line, The Patriotic Mermaid at thepatrioticmermaid.com and on social media at The Patriotic Mermaid. I love it.